My friend Brian found himself in a very similar place like that. He found himself in his own bathroom stall. With his permission, I'll share with you, it was his sophomore year of college. He was away in Colorado, grew up in a Kansas kind of farm. And he was living in what he literally described like an animal house. He says it wasn't a fraternity. It was an off-campus house, five of us guys, small little bedroom, two little bathrooms that we never cleaned. And he said, we just partied all the time. He said, we partied so much, we, we couldn't even keep up with taking the kegs back to the liquor store. So the kegs became furniture. A, a, a nightstand was a keg, you know. Um, the breakfast room uh, stool, uh, the coffee table was a keg. And every time that he'd talk to his parents, they'd say, how are you doing, Brian? And he'd say, oh, I'm fine. That's good. How are you doing in school? He said, I'm, I'm doing well. Have you found a church yet, Brian? Uh, kind of. I'm still kind of looking. And everything was not fine. In fact, Brian was failing every single class except for intermediate volleyball, he said. <laughs> he said he had a .7 GPA that semester. He was broke and piling up debt. He was spiritually bankrupt. There was really nothing going on on the inside that he could tell. The friends that he had been surrounding himself with, he had discovered, no, these really aren't my friends. And I think he'd probably say, I wasn't being a friend to them either. And at one moment, it was in December of his sophomore year, that he just went into one of those grimy bathrooms that never got cleaned in this animal house. He fell onto the bathroom floor, just kind of collapsed in a heap on the pea-stained vinyl floor, and he's leaning up against the toilet. And he grabs his phone, and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I, was, I had the phone to my ear, and I'm resting with my elbow on a stack of pornographic magazines. He said, we called it our toilet literature. And this time he calls home. And this time he said it was like a truth serum kind of rose up where he knew he wasn't fine. And very little was okay. And the pain of his circumstances and keeping all of that kind of pressed down grew more unbearable than the lie, and he realized he just had to, to come clean, and so there he is on this bathroom floor, and the phone is ringing, it's the middle of the night, and his parents pick up, and he just lets it all out. He shares everything, he doesn't hold anything back, and then there's silence. And finally, his parents say to him three words. He said, they were not the three words I was expecting. They didn't say, we love you. They didn't say, how could you? They didn't say it'll be okay. Just three words. Just come home. And in that bathroom stall for my friend Brian was a hand extended that changed the very rest 
of the trajectory of his life. In that moment, he experienced what in the New Testament is just simply described as grace upon grace, and you would just continue it. It's just like in perpetuity, grace upon grace upon grace, the grace of heaven splashing like a waterfall, like Niagara upon my friend Brian, the grace of the pounding waves of the sea just pounding the shore with grace upon grace, the fullness of grace upon grace. And we've been, just since last week, we've been trying to unpack what, what is this grace? It's so squishy. It's so kind of obtuse. It's like, how could you really define grace in ways that aren't tired or technical? So if we were playing taboo, like we talked about last, last week, and you got the grace card, and on that grace card were words that you just couldn't quite use, like unmerited favor, prevenient grace. You couldn't roll out the Greek. You couldn't talk about sanctifying. You couldn't talk about amazing, right? You couldn't do any of those kinds of things. What could you use to describe a street-level understanding of the most beautiful word in the world? And that's where I, I stumbled into this song by this musician. I don't think he's a Christian guy. He just writes great songs. And his name is Vance Joy. And here's from the lyrics of this song. He says, hold on, darling. This body is yours. This body is yours and mine. Hold on, my darling. Here it is. This mess was yours. Now your mess is mine. Your mess is mine. Your mess is mine. Is that not grace? Is that not really what it is? You made this mess. Everyone else wants to say, now clean it up. No, no, this mess of yours, it's mine. And I'll stand with you in that place. Parents, those of you that dedicated your children on this stage, yes, you're dedicating to the Lord. You're dedicating yourself as parents to the Lord. But guess what you're also saying? Kid, those diapers, mine. Those bibs, mine. All the moments that we can't turn off for the rest of our parenting lives, we're constantly saying, your mess is mine. If you're married and you say your vows, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, until death do us part, in sickness and in health. See, we often think we, we enter into marriage saying, your beauty is mine, right? It's like, it's all the good stuff. I'm just taking all the good. No, no, no. We're saying, your mess is mine. Your debt is mine. Your parents are now mine. Right? Your story, your mess is mine. Have you experienced that kind of grace? Just want to greet you here in the room. How are you doing? You all well today? Have you, have you experienced that kind of grace? I want to say Speedway. Have you experienced that kind of grace upon grace? Online community, South Sanctuary, that grace upon grace where someone says to you, your mess is mine. Have you ever been evicted and you couldn't make rent? Someone brought their truck over, packed you up? Have you ever gone through a divorce? And someone brought you in and you slept on their couch for weeks? Have you ever just been in a really dark place and you didn't know how to get out of it? You didn't have words for it at the time, but it was clinical depression and you weren't yourself and others were mad at you because they couldn't figure you out but someone just stood by you and stuck their hand underneath your stall and they just said, I'm here, I'm here. For as long as you need to be in there, I'm here. 
Have you ever run away or just not want to be found in one way or another and someone got the searchlights out for you? And they knew exactly how to find you. That's someone saying, your mess is mine. The Apostle Paul experienced that moment in two ways. One, he experienced it from God. He calls it the grace of God. And just by way of rewind from, from last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse nine, he's gonna roll out how he experienced God saying to him, your mess is mine. He says this, for I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because he says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Three times, Paul rolls out this word to describe his journey and story. Three times, like it was the grace of God, it was the grace of God, it was the grace of God. And where did he encounter that grace of God? He grew up a a great kind of upright Jewish boy, was studied under all the best kind of rabbis. He went to all the best schools. His pedigree was stout. And then he starts getting wind of these Jesus kind of followers. They're fledgling. They're talking about this rabbi that was dead but now is alive. And people are starting to gather and they're starting to grow. There's no organization to it. And Paul knows as a leader in the the Jewish synagogue in in Jerusalem, he's got to snuff it out. So when he says, I persecuted the church of God, literally to at least one person's death, his name was Stephen. And things got so hot in Jerusalem that this fledgling band of followers of Jesus said we, we, they became refugees. They had to flee, and many of them went 135 miles to this town called Damascus. They scattered, they dispersed, they ran for their lives, and the scriptures say that Paul went after them, breathing murderous threats. And it's there that he experiences the hand of God that is not so short that it cannot save. And here's just kind of the, the map, if you were to Google it, from Jerusalem down on the bottom, right? And if you went to the right, you'd save a few hours up to Damascus. And that's where Paul experienced, the, experienced a flash of blinding light. It didn't look like that. It wasn't clip art. It threw him to the ground. It knocked him out at the knees. He, it literally says, He couldn't see for three days. He couldn't eat or drink. He had to be held by hand and literally gingerly walked into Damascus. Paul experienced the grace of God by force. It was an encounter that marked him. And then we see the grace of God through people. That's what I want to look at today. He experienced the grace of God through two individuals in particular. And if you turn with me in your Westside app, if you turn with me, your old school Bible, or on your phone, here's what we'll see. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now, this is a cool moment. Here's what's happening. Paul has been led by hand, can't see, not eating, not drinking for three days. He is in Damascus. He's at the house of a guy named Judas, not that Judas. 
He's living in this house on Straight Street. We literally have the address. That's what's happening. Now we pick up verse 10. We see what's happening on the other side. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord. The, the, the Lord told them, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. That's the earlier version of, of Paul's name. So you're going to hear Paul and Saul kind of interchangeably here. So go to the Straight Street house. It's Judas' house, right? There's a guy from Tarsus. His name is Saul, and he's praying. Interesting. He's praying. Can't see, can't drink, can't eat, but he's praying. In a vision, this Paul, this Saul, has seen a man named Ananias. Guess who that is? Ananias is like, oh, that's me. You're talking about me. He's seen a vision that you would come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, hold on. Ananias answered, ah, I, uh, I have... I've heard uh, about this cat, many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and the kings and to the people of Israel. And then God says, eh. Uh, he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, then Paul being Paul, he's just going to go on and he's going to start. He's had this radical change and now he wants to tell everyone. Not everyone's happy with it. So he actually has to run for his life. He ends back up at Jerusalem. Pick up with me in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. That's like Peter, James, and John. He wanted to be on the team. But they were all afraid of him, wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic, that means the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Just have uh, some observations about this. And the first one is this. Why don't you think chronologically here for a moment? In this, what we just read, Paul had the grace of God but he did not have the grace of God's people. If you just think chronologically, he had an encounter. It was fearsome. It was beautiful. It was life-changing. And he's being changed. He's experiencing the grace and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus. But there's a gap 
between experiencing the grace of God's people, how many in your life and in mine find themselves in that gap too? Where they have experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, but not from you. Where God from heaven has said, like Jesus at the cross who cried out, your mess is mine. And by the way of the empty tomb, your mess is one. And one day I'll return as king and say and declare, your mess is gone. He or she in your life has experienced that message and we still say, no, your mess is yours. It's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible place for that person. And truthfully, that's a horrible place for us. That's that old adage of drinking the poison, hoping someone else dies. What is happening in us when we don't extend the hand underneath the bathroom stall? When we don't say, your mess is mine, though God has is there somebody in your life where that's true? And to press that even further, if there's anyone that God has forgiven but that we have not, then we are outside the will of God. Would you agree? If the God of the cosmos has extended his hand of grace and we are unwilling to, then we are outside the will of God. I don't know how you can argue with that. But I want to. I want to because grace is messy and it is confusing. It is messy and it is confusing. And it is so hard when you have been so hurt. I've walked with friends who have been unfaithful in their marriage. And they have been in the dark for years, thinking about one in particular, though I've walked with, with others. It was a secret. That secret had power over them. They were living a duplicitous life, and one day they were found out. They were exposed, and it was brought into the light. And fortunately, thank God, they owned it, they repented, and they experienced the grace of God upon their lives. And whereas it was like they were on this teeter-totter and life was heavy and what the scriptures say about when we just kind of try to like stay in our sins, it like will decay us down to our bones. There's a heaviness. But when you experience and come into the light and you experience the grace of God, it's like, bam, you feel free. You feel alive. You feel suddenly yourself. And yet you have a marriage partner who's where? They didn't see this coming. And your mess has been brought into the light. And now that spouse who's been completely blindsided is carrying all the weight and the burden and the confusion and your mess. And it is so hard. How do you in those moments Keep holding on to that hand. How do you in those moments say, your mess is mine and this mess is ours?
Well, there's a healing path there, but it requires a decision. A decision to say, I didn't want this mess. I didn't ask for this mess. I didn't commit this mess. But I am in a covenant. And I do have to own that I contribute to the patterns in our relationship. And I've got to work on the path of forgiveness towards you. And I've got to work on the path of owning what even I need to own. That is hard. And what makes it really difficult is that as Christians, we're not called just to give grace. We're also called to bear truth. Jesus embodied, the scriptures say, John chapter one, verse 14, that he came from the Father, the fullness of grace and truth. He was both things. He was both grace and truth. And it was absolutely beautiful. And, and it was the combination of those two things that leads to, to life change. Now, we're in a series on grace. We're just hitting grace hard. But we have to say that in a moment like that, the teeter-totter moment, truth is needed too. And every single one of us, it's my opinion, that we're, uh, we're better at one of those things than the other. We're, some of us are better at truth, and others of us are better at grace. Some of us are gracers, and, and gracers, we just like, man, we know everyone messes us up. We're all imperfect. We're all finding our way. We just got to give grace. We lead with grace. And others are going, no, no, look, you're not going to change unless you own, unless you walk the line, unless you are restored, unless you experience healthy, proper discipline and all those things, right? A truther will say, don't be soft on crime. And a gracer will say, hey, you know what? Who here would cast the first stone, right? In that actual picture that Jesus says, who here cast the first stone? That's the, that's the grace side, right? And go and sin no more is what he says. This is the story of a woman caught in adultery. And he says to her these beautiful two things. Who here condemns you? That's tons of grace. Go and sin no more. That's the truth. Don't do that. It's not good for you. How many of you are more truthers? You're like, yes, I'm more inclined to be a truther. Like, I really like that part of what Jesus said. Just go ahead, raise your hand. All right. How many of you are gracers? The who here condemns you, right? How many of you are gracers, right? Okay, so we find ourselves in this place where we all have a path of growth. If you're a truther, your path to becoming more like Jesus, who was the fullness of grace and truth, is to be upended, really disturbed and disrupted by the grace of God. And if you are a gracer, your path to becoming more like Jesus is to allow God's truth to be truth and not to play footloose and fancy free with it and to lean more in to what God says versus what maybe we want him to say. Making sense? Making sense? But this is what makes it so hard, so difficult. When it comes to grace, we don't want to be enabling. We don't want to be permissive. There is a sense of healthy boundaries. What's yours is not mine, but there's this thing called ours. And grace steps into the messy middle and says, I'm going to come down here with you. And I'm going to be here with you. And I'm going to hold your hand underneath the bathroom stall. Your mess is mine. And you know what that takes? 
practice that kind of grace? Guts. That takes guts. We think grace is soft. It's not soft. Grace takes guts. It did for Ananias. It did for Barnabas. After they got over their reservations, right? After they were like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't know about this, Lord. Yeah, and everyone else is kind of freaking out. I just want you to look at verse 17. Ananias hears, I want you to go. He gets a kind of a clear message. And then verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. What house? The house on Straight Street. Whose house? Judas, not that Judas. Who's inside that house? Paul, a murderer. Ananias goes. He enters into that house. Could you imagine what that was like? He's like, okay, I'm just going. I'm just going. I, I, I've, here's what I've heard. He's a murderer. He's against us. I'm gonna go meet him. Right? And this isn't like, I mean, the word on the street isn't like, like we're like, Justin Bieber, is he really Christian? Is he not? Bob Dylan, if you're a few decades before. Like, was he really? Did it really? No, no. This is like Osama bin Laden has given his life to Jesus. And now Ananias is going into this house. This takes guts. The grace of God takes guts. And then what does he do? Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. No vetting, no like, I just need to walk you through a couple of quick questions here. <laughs> Nothing. That takes guts. Look at Barnabas. Barnabas, who's new to the party himself, he wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't in the band uh, initially. You know, he's like the fifth beetle. He's like the 13th guy. And no one will touch him with a 10-foot pole, this, this, this Paul guy. Everyone's afraid of him. But Barnabas, it says, verse 27, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, told him this, told him that. He stood with them in solidarity. He vouched for him, no matter his reputation, put it all at stake. I mean, they, they could have gone like, man, is Barnabas like part of the sleeper cell too? Like what? Like all of a sudden, he could be incriminated for his association but he didn't care. He's like, I know, I'm gonna stand with them. I'm gonna stand beside him. I'm gonna reach my hand out under the stall. And that takes guts, takes courage. It takes a radical commitment to following Jesus wherever he leads and all we say is yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So who and to whom do you need to say, your mess is mine? Who right now is maybe in that gap between experiencing the forgiveness of God but doesn't yet have the forgiveness of God's people? What a horrible place to be. Who right now has not experienced the forgiveness and grace of God but they just might if you went first? If we were to go back to the scripture and put our names in it, I mean, it's literally to stick with the syntax. Verse 27, it says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. What if you, we put our names in it? But Dan took, fill in the blank, who, who is God moving in our heart? And then did what? What does it look like for you to stick your hand underneath the stall and say, I'm here and I'm not leaving. I'm here and I'm not leaving. Because the grace of God, Jesus cried at the cross for me, your mess is mine. He emptied the grave and said, your mess is one. And one day he'll return and said, everyone's mess is gone to all those who call Christ Lord. So why would I withhold that to anyone else? 
And so Brian, my friend Brian, he went back to the family farm and his family came around and they had their disappointments, they had their embarrassments, they had debt, they had all sorts of things. But they just stuck with him. And that was, I don't know, close to 30 years ago. And Brian is one of the many friends in a moment of my life where life was confusing and life was hard and life was upside down and I was inside my bathroom stall and didn't know the way out. Brian and I, we'd take walks at Sarko Par Park. Brian and I, we'd have a cup of coffee at Revo Cup. Brian, just a text away. Why? Because Brian knows what it's like to be on the inside of the stall. And he longs to hand, extend his hand from outside to someone else inside. See, when you've experienced the grace of God, you want everyone to experience it too. You want that freedom. You want that joy. When Ananias places his hand on Saul and calls him brother, that is the hand underneath the stall. And so who is that for you? And let me tell you what that will do for us, Westside. When we do that collectively as a people, when we practice this kind of grace, grace unlocks the church. Grace unlocks the church. Look what it did in the early church. Two people vouched for Paul. Just imagine if they hadn't vouched for Paul. Paul had this great little personal experience, but no one will touch him. Everything would be different. But instead, he's vouched for. Hands are laid upon him. Verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. There's your grace and truth together. It increased in numbers. You see, if a church is not going to practice this grace and live in this grace, it will not grow. It will not grow in healthy ways. And that's what I love about this church here in Pastor Randy who often says we need to be, meet people at their point of pain. Hearing him say that a lot more lately. That we are um, wanting to wrap God's family around your family. Guess what that takes? It takes grace upon grace upon grace. See, if you and, and I, and his names are rising up in us, and we, we go, there's, there's some in our world and in our lives that are experiencing or could experience the grace of God, if only they experience the grace from me. And when God is saying, your mess is mine, but I keep saying, no, your mess is yours, something's wrong, but I'm gonna step into that scary and dangerous and sometimes scandalous place, and I'm gonna say, no, your mess and is it all, all the church? Guess what? It's not just your mess is mine. Guess what we get to say? Your mess is ours. And that's how we wrap God's family around your family. So who is that? Who needs the waterfall cascading down from heaven, immersing them in the deep heart and love of the Father who is the fullness of grace and truth? And so, God, we pray, we ask, we just say, rise up, oh God, your deep heart to us. Show us, give us a name, a face, 
a person, a picture. That we might step in that messy and confusing space courageously with great grit and guts and love like you with an outstretched hand.